Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and it's just me this week. We had planned to do uh, an episode uh, with all three of us, but, you know, life happens. Starring Aaron Eckhart and Jennifer Aniston. No, that was that was Love Happens, a movie that uh, no one... I'm going to say I'm hazard that no one but me remembers, just because uh, the title was so unmemorable that I have never forgotten it. It's weird how things like that happen. Uh, much like Aaron Eckhart's like post Dark Knight career, where he was in one of the most successful movies of all time, and then he was just like, ah, "I'll just do any old shit. I'll play a Frankenstein. Who cares?" But yeah, so uh, we can't record a full episode this week, uh, which is a shame because we had a, a really good topic that we'll be doing uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But in lieu of putting out a full episode, I'm just going to do a, a quick mini episode in which uh, I'm just going to run through some of the news stories that we we're going to talk about and uh, do some recommendations. So we'll go straight on to the news, and I guess the most pressing news in this literally just happened is that the Aladdin remake, directed by Guy Ritchie, just debuted to number one in the US, earned about, and the estimates are something like $87 million over three days, and they estimate that it's going to make about $100 million over the four-day weekend with Memorial Day numbers added in, which kind of surprised me. I, I didn't think it was going to be a flop or anything, but because, you know, the Aladdin name is so uh, so resonant certainly for people of like you know my generations people in their, their early 30s and uh, and you know 20s would you know have a, have a very strong relationship to Aladdin and Robin Williams as the genie and all that sort of stuff and obviously that the Aladdin brand has been maintained pretty well over the years thanks to the Broadway play which is is wildly popular and you know, ancillary things like the spin-offs and the TV series and everything, and the songs for it are iconic. So, you know, there were a lot of things in its favour, and obviously it has the might of Disney behind it, and Disney occasionally will push a movie that doesn't make a huge amount of money or flops, but they've generally been pretty good, particularly with these live-action remakes of their older animated stuff, the, the one exception being, of course, Dumbo, which opened only a few weeks ago, and kind of like is, is pretty much a spent force at this point but still made over 100 million at the box office so even even their failures tend to you know make a, a decent stab of it um but yeah I, I personally and i think a lot of other people didn't necessarily think given the early fairly negative buzz about the first trailers and how weird will smith's genie looked that yeah, it would amount to this level of success and and also you know like Guy Ritchie's track record at the box office recently has been patchy at best you know he had a, a massive flop just a couple of years ago with the King Arthur movie he did with Charlie Hunnam which uh, like all of his movies it reimagined a, an iconic figure of of myth or pop culture and says or also they're really good at boxing which seems to be his thing so this is is feels like uh, fairly redemptive for him after a bad run post the two Sherlock Holmes movies he made, which made a huge amount of money. So it'll be interesting to see where his career goes next. If uh, you know, if it gets us another Man from Uncle movie, which it won't, but if it does, that'd be okay by me. I really enjoyed the first one, and I do like his two Sherlock Holmes movies. So if he can finagle this into making a third one, then who knows? Maybe it'll all, it'll all come out well in the end. But yeah, so that was I think that's 
the first kind of big surprise box office thing of the year for me as someone who kind of follows it uh that sort of thing closely and and also just personally it's very weird like the personal connection with me with Aladdin doing so well as it seems to have sparked sparked my Twitter feed to just explode with uh, it sparked my mentions to explode because uh, I tweeted the other day about the top movies of 1992 when the first Aladdin came out and saying like I wanted to see how well the first Aladdin actually did and how well this Aladdin would have to do to to beat it which it would need to earn like nearly 500 million dollars in adjusted for inflation which is not going to do but uh, today while I was on the treadmill earlier I looked at my phone and I had like literally 100 notifications because that tweet had suddenly started being retweeted and favorited and I was you know, I think as anyone who's kind of connected to the social media landscape, looked at it and think, oh my God, am I being ratioed? Has, have I been cancelled? So no, it's just like a lot of people sharing that silly tweet that I sent out, just ruining my phone battery. So that's been fun. Next, and kind of like more into the world of more serious cinema, we have the winners at the Cannes Film Festival, which just wrapped up the other day and had some incredibly... Uh, exciting wins probably the uh, the most exciting mo- uh, news as far as i'm concerned just because i'm a huge fan of this director was bong joon ho's parasite winning and the reviews from that have been ecstatic people have been saying that's his best film yet and considering you're talking about the guy who directed like memories of murder and the host and mother and the, the good one not the aronofsky one or the albert brooks one uh you know the idea that his latest movie is not only you know being recognized by Cannes, which is the this preeminent film festival, and it's the first, I believe, the first Korean movie that's ever kind of won a serious award there, despite the fact that it's a a country whose cinema has been thriving for like the last decade or so. It really is quite stunning that it's never been recognised that that, that that cinema has not been recognised in that way, and that Parasite uh, has received that recognition is very exciting, and hopefully it will do well when it hits, you know, theatres later this year. I would hope, certainly hope so. Uh, and, you know, otherwise, uh, Antonio Manderas won Best Actor for the new Pedro Almodovar movie, which is hugely exciting. Uh, as someone who's a fan of his work, Celine Sciamma won Best Screenplay for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Celine Sciamma previously directed the movies Tomboy and uh, Girlhood. Girlhood is an amazing movie that came out a few years ago. If people haven't seen it, it's, it's really, really fantastic. Of the Dardens won Best Director for a movie move called The Yon Ahmed, which <laughs> uh, the, the best review I've read of it said it's not as racist as you think it's going to be, because I believe it's about a, a young boy who's kind of drawn to Islamic extremism, and there, there's no one you want making a movie about Islamic extremism more than two old Belgians. So uh, <laughs> the fact that it's apparently not a complete train wreck is probably something to be to be thankful for. Uh, and, you know, and it's like, I love a lot of the Darden film brothers' work, but certainly I had my trepidations when that film kind of was announced and details of it leaked out. So that it's uh, apparently not a crime <laughs> is is worth celebrating. And the next story is that Taika Waititi is the latest director in the kind of the constant merry-go-round of young up-and-coming directors to be attached to direct Akira, the remake of the classic anime from 1988. And which in itself is also based on a, a classic manga. And, you know, as I said, like, he's the latest. Like, a lot of people have been attached to that over the years for a long time. The Hughes brothers, who directed, like, Menace to Society and 
the Book of Eli have been attached to it for, for quite some time. I think Jordan Peele was kind of rumoured to be circulating it a couple of years ago after Get Out was a huge success. It's, it's this kind of become a little bit of an elephant's graveyard of directors who, you know, direct a couple of movies that get a bit of heat, maybe have a commercial success, and then everyone's just like, oh, no, we really want you to work on Akira. And uh, if it ends up happening, I think... Taika Waititi is an interesting choice for it. He has said that he wants to do it with an Asian cast, which is probably better than, you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio was circling it and starring in it for probably a lot later in his career than would have been appropriate, even, you know, just age-wise, because, uh, you know, you can't play a young street punk biker for forever, certainly not once you're in your early 40s. And Waititi demonstrating for Ragnarok that he has a very... He has ability to make kind of a very big, bold popcorn entertainment that's kind of visually very distinctive. And I I imagine that Warner Brothers, who I believe are producing Akira at this point, are probably just so desperate to have someone make the movie that they won't be as restrictive as Marvel tend to be with a lot of their properties. So there's perhaps a lot more opportunities there for him to do something really inventive and incredible. And then, you know, like Akira itself is something that is ripe for adaptation obviously the the anime is incredible and hugely influential but it itself was a very loose adaptation of the manga because uh otomo who had who directed both the movie and wrote the book i believe didn't want the movie to ruin how the manga was going to end because he was still where he was working at both more or less simultaneously so the ending of the movie is very different from the book you know the, the ending of the book is kind of like quite languid and it'd be it'd be there's a lot of material there if they wanted to kind of dig into that and maybe do something that is distinctive from the already very very good movie you know there's a lot of stuff they could do different or they could just do you know a shot for shot thing and it would still probably be one of the more exciting action movies to come out of hollywood in a long time so i am cautiously optimistic about it like as ever with a, a kind of a remake of a of a movie certainly the one that i really really love uh i i kind of try and take the philosophical view of like oh they're not going to delete the original and at this point you know it's been 31 years since the original came out you know i think it's it's fine for someone to try and do akira again just so long as you know they go into it with the right attitude and like good ideas for it really like that's the 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 main problem really i think with all the attempts to make Akira was there was always that worry of like they're just gonna like do a rehash and it's not gonna have a lot of spark to it but I think someone like Taika Waititi could do something really really interesting with it and uh, I hope if that eventually does come out in 2021 as it's intended to we'll uh we'll hopefully get something really cool out of it uh a bit of Netflix news as, as Emily said a few weeks ago there's always a little bit of Netflix news that creeps in uh, this week saw the release of the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience, the visual poem from the Lonely Island, their kind of most significant work since the release of Popstar, which, as we've talked about on this show before, is one of the best films of the decade, and everyone should finally accept that into their hearts. And people are starting to do it, but but not enough. So uh, this is their kind of like their most significant project together in the, the three years since that movie came out. For me, it's not as good as Popstar, which I think is just like a really incredibly funny movie that crams a lot into a very short runtime. But as like a little half hour curio in which 
uh, Akiva Schaefer and Andy Samberg play Mark Maguire and Jose Canseco and kind of tell the story of their time with the Oakland A's abusing steroids and hitting lots of home runs through the medium of comedy rap. You know, it kind of sets out its stall. That's what they want to do. It's not the most ambitious thing in the world, but they do it very well. It's There's kind of a lot of good songs and it, there's, it's, it's, it is funny, you know, like a lot of their stuff. It's incredibly silly, but treated with a certain degree of craft and seriousness, like the beats are, are solid and the rhymes are good. The only problem I have with it is it's not kind of wild and audacious enough in the way that I think some of their best stuff is. Like if you think of some of the best stuff they did for SNL, it wasn't just, okay, they had a funny song and they told some funny jokes. It was be like, okay, here we have a funny song and it's going to take a twist halfway through. Like the, the, the best example, of course, being uh, Jack Sparrow, the song they did with Michael Bolton, where it starts off and they're, they're doing a song where he's singing the hook and he just is has just watched all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and just wants to keep turning the song into a song about how much he loves Jack Sparrow and it kind of gets bigger and bigger and crazier and bolder. And there isn't really that similar moment in this. You know, there there's a few. There's one where there, there's a song called Focused AF where just at one point... Andy Sandberg starts talking about how he has a room full of cardboard cutouts of the American model Kathy Island and he runs through and she's the only one who sees, sees his fears and shame. And it's like, that's the kind of thing I wish the sh- that it did more of. But at the same time, you know, you have Sterling K. Brown playing Sia, which not a lot of other projects can say. I think it's fair to, to say that. And you also have a song featuring Haim, who uh, I, I love and it's great hearing them in such an unusual context but still having just gorgeous harmonies <laughs> on uh, a song in which they're just talking telling uh, uh Schaefer and Sandberg to shake their nasty butts <laughs> so uh, so there's, there's there's certainly pleasures to be had in it it's just it, it just kind of feels a little bit insubstantial but at the same time it kind of feels like that's an appropriate place for it just on Netflix you know dropping it as a surprise lemonade style visual album that they just kind of like drop and say hey this is like a weird thing that can't really exist anywhere else you're not going to you know get people to make this as a movie you know like it's not really going to fit anywhere on television it's too long to be a sketch on SNL you know Netflix can you just kind of put it out there and that's kind of something that I think Netflix have done very well over the last couple of years you know for all of the criticisms of how they handle their movies which we've talked about a lot on the show in the past like they have been very supportive of comedy new voices and comedy people who are coming up over the last couple of years out of the, the kind of the fertile la scene the podcast scene there you've, you've seen them put out specials by like people like chelsea peretti who probably at the time wouldn't have got a special anywhere else now she you know if she wanted to do another special i'm sure she'd have a lot of outlets but at the time you know she was a writer from parks and rec and someone who is known more for her writing and podcast appearances than, you know, kind of acting and performances. So they've been very supportive of people who either new voices kind of doing exciting, interesting things or supporting people who are maybe a bit more established and want to do something that won't really find an outlet anywhere else. And you also see that with their relationship with Scott Ackerman, who did the Michael Bolton's sexy Valentine's Day special a couple of years, which was also with the, the Lonely Island is just incredibly weird and strange thing that just has no place anywhere else so it's it's kind of nice that netflix are supporting those sort of projects which they're also doing again speaking of ackerman with 
the Between Two Ferns movie, which was announced this week, uh, which <laughs> who knows how that's going to turn out. But uh, I like the idea of Zach Galifianakis being, uh, and in the plot of the movie, basically Zach Galifianakis gets so furious after being humiliated by, I want to say, Will Ferrell, that he just decides he's going to go out and interview as many famous people as possible. And that's a slim premise for a movie, but it's maybe the the only premise that a Between Two Ferns movie could sustain. <laughs> so, well, I, I'm excited to see how that turns out because I'm a big fan of Scott Ockman's work and uh, the, the Between Two Ferns stuff he's done with Zach Galifianakis over the last uh, seven or eight years or so has been just consistently pretty funny and odd. And, you know, kind of like, it, it's, it's interesting how that specific brand of anti-humour has really caught on uh, in a major way. So it'd be interesting to see how they manage to stretch that out to feature length. And the last news story this week is the news that Sony are launching a production company to turn PlayStation exclusives into movies. And, you know, this coming on the heels of the success of the Detective Pikachu movie and uh, the... (laughs) The continuing baffling saga of the Sonic movie, which got delayed until next year to be fixed because everyone said, uh, this looks terrible, please make it not. It, it, but but at least it's generating discussion. You know, there, there, there certainly seems to be a growing consensus that what people want now is more computer game movies, and that may be uh, dubious reasoning, like maybe they just like Pikachu. Which I think is, you know, kind of a universal, a universal love. Everyone loves that that fat little yellow rat, and everyone loves detectives. So obviously that movie was going to do well, but you know that that movie has achieved a level of success that not a lot of uh, computer game movies do. It, I think, has become only the second or third computer game movie to cross a hundred million dollars at the U.S., which is is symbolic more than anything else. Because if you look at some of the other movies that have been adapted from video games a lot of them have not done terribly well in the u.s but done like gangbusters business worldwide the the best example of which being the six resident evil movies most of which were directed by paul ws anderson none of which you know were hugely successful in the u.s they were they were at best like modest successes but between them owned earned more than a billion dollars worldwide you know that franchise always justified its own existence through the stuff it made overseas and that's i think you also see that in something like the the need for speed movie starring aaron paul which came out a couple of years ago which just completely flamed out in the u.s but was huge in china not enough for it to you know kind of spawn a huge franchise in the same way that resident evil did but you know there's a there's certainly a, a success in the u.s doesn't really necessarily mean that much for computer game movies because there's, there's certainly a big global audience but th- this is interesting Sony taking this tack because it's very clearly mar- uh, modelled on the Marvel model of them deciding they're going to take control over the products they own the rights to and saying, okay, we're going to steer this. We're not going to just farm this out to external studios to develop. We're going to develop these in-house, you know, work with studios to get them distributed or whatever. And, and you know, like the, the I think some of the properties they have that could work with this, you know, it could be quite interesting. Like, you could get a God of War movie. That's a movie that's always that's a that's a series that's always had a certain degree of cinema that's had cinematic qualities to it, and kind of like you know recognizable mythology. So there's there's lots of things that you could draw in there, particularly in the the the, the most recent one, which has a lot of Norse mythology in there, and people have kind of like a t- 
tacit understanding of some of that stuff thanks to the Thor movies or, or you know, The Last of Us, which is kind of basically a movie anyway that you play on occasion. Uh, you know, so there's, there's it'd be interesting to see if any of those projects actually come to fruition. Uh, Bloodborne they could make, but I think if they really wanted to recreate the experience of playing Bloodborne as in a cinematic context, you'd have to watch every scene like 40 times before you could move on to the next one. But that certainly, to me, seems very interesting in terms of the future of video game movies, because it seemed for a while that, at, you know, in America at least, the video game movie had kind of petered out interest after, like I said, the Need for Speed movie not doing very well, the Assassin's Creed movie not doing very well. There was this kind of like sense that interest in that had, had died down. And in Japan, you know, like video game movies get made all the time. I think Takashi Miike makes like seven of them a year. But you know, Sony taking a more direct hand and maybe following a very successful model, perhaps augurs a, uh, a potential kind of golden age of video game adaptations, or at least a period of a few years where they, you know, just try and make all of the stuff that people sort of know into movies and them failing. Uh, I certainly will be excited to see if any of them uh, actually take flight. So that's the news for this week. So now I'm just going to do some quick recommendations and let you all get back to whatever it is you're doing, your, your commutes, your workouts, you know, whatever else it is that people do listening to podcasts. Uh, I'm going to recommend a few things because obviously it's just me. Uh, I'm going to recommend a uh, a video on YouTube, a video essay by Lindsay Ellis. Lindsay Ellis is a video essayist who I think I've recommended on here before. If I haven't, then you know everyone go and watch the three videos she did about The Hobbit, which recently got nominated for a Hugo, and is a great kind of examination of the many ways in which the three Hobbit movies were a kind of failure artistically in some ways but also the kind of damage they did to the New Zealand economy and the many ways in which they represent these somewhat difficult ideas about you know corporate filmmaking but what I'm going to recommend this video she did this week about Aladdin again to tie into the news where uh, she talked about Robin Williams's role in the original Aladdin and his very mixed feelings about the legacy of that movie because he obviously signed on to do the voice of the genie and um, was a rare celebrity who you know kind of a-list celebrity who agreed to do a voice in a movie and at the time you know didn't want his voice and his character to be used to sell too much merchandise and you know which obviously seems laughable given how much disney merchandise everything and he had a very kind of public falling out with the studio as a result of that, as he, you know, as, as his image and his voice was used to sell pretty much everything and anything that it could be applied to. And uh, Ellis kind of explores the fallout of that, you know, the way that this inadvertently led to a culture of animated movies that just had tons of celebrity voices, even though no one really cares about who voices animated movies, not in the same way that you care about, you know, who's the star of a movie, like Will Smith voicing a fish in Shark Tale doesn't really mean anything, you know, and, and in a lot of cases, a lot of celebrities being cast as the voices in animated movies is just bizarre, and some of the examples she points to in that are, are really, really funny, and I think it's a really thoughtful and sweet and sad essay about 
the unexpected impact of this one role on animation history, on Hollywood, on Disney in the 90s, and, you know, on, on Williams himself and what the role meant to him, considering uh, considering the role was basically conceived with him in mind and how it captured certain things about him as a performer and an actor. And it's it's a really good. It's uh yeah, so just go on Lindsay Ellis's YouTube page and it's the, the most recent video about Aladdin and Robin Williams. And I'm also going to recommend a TV series called Barry on HBO and I'm specifically recommending it because I think it's we're, we're going to do a whole episode about it, particularly the second season. So this is an advance warning uh, for people if uh, you have access to Barry which is available on HBO go here in the US and I'm going to say probably now TV in the or Sky in the UK it's it's available somewhere I know people have been watching it and it's great it's a show starring Bill Hader who is also you know wrote and, and co-created it and directs some of the episodes where he plays a, a an assassin called Barry Berkman who stumbles across a acting class in LA when he's meant to assassinate one of the people taking part in it and he kind of finds a kind of catharsis in acting and he you know kind of decides to enroll and tries to extricate himself from this life of violence that he has found himself in as a, a war veteran who's kind of returned to everyday civilian life and and found no place for him and you know was kind of roped into his life of violence by his handler played by uh Stephen Root who's brilliant and the first season is is just terrific it's like a really tight tightly plotted funny comedy drama about a guy just 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 trying not to do the thing that he is incredibly good at which is murdering people horribly and has this like really great supporting cast people like Darcy Carden who people will know as Janet from The Good Place and Henry Winkler in a kind of great role as the acting teacher on who genuinely seems to care for Barry but also is manipulating him terribly which is also a defining feature of the relationship between Stephen Root who is who is amazing in it as well as uh, Fuchs, the the handler that I previously mentioned. But the second season, I think, is a real stunner. It is funnier and more serious. You know, it's the, probably the show that most closely resembles The Sopranos in some ways of anything that HBO put out in recent years in that it is both deadly serious when it comes to the question of what violence does to the soul of the main character and in being invested in his emotional life and what he is trying to do and what he's trying to get out of this acting class whilst also being like just incredibly funny particularly in terms of his supporting cast as a character in it called Noho Hank who I think we will probably talk about when we do the episode on him uh, on it which is he is just for me one of the best comedy characters of the last decade it's uh, an amazing comedy character uh, comedic character uh, but yeah, like I said, we'll probably talk about him more when we do an episode on, on Barry Season 2. So yes, everyone watch Barry Season 1 and 2 uh, over the next couple of weeks. That's your, that's your homework because we will be talking about it in depth in a couple of weeks. And uh, you just and, and you don't want to be spoiled because even though it's not a, a terribly plot-heavy show, there are kind of some big things that happen in the second season that uh, we'll want to talk about. And uh, it'd be nice. I think it's nice to go in with some things unspoiled like i'm not massively spoiler averse and i don't think that necessarily knowing what's going to happen in a story can ruin it but it's it is still nice to go into things with a blank slate where possible if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm acast 
uh, you know, leave us a review, rate us, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Bye.